Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, November 25th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filesbutphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Did you guys all have a wonderful Thanksgiving? Yeah. We got through without any bloodshed. You know, so. <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that's a win in, in many uh, circumstances. when uh, get Families together get together, right? Families. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So um, on Thanksgiving Day, there was uh, a little uh, parade down, uh, well, <laughs> uh, partially, I, I guess, down 6th Avenue up to Broad, up, up, you know, <laughs> up to... Uh, up to Macy's, and um, we're going to talk about this at first in a, in a few minutes. But first up, Michael, Peter, and I all got a chance to see the prom on Broadway. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on the prom? I adored it. Um, I thought it was a terrific musical, and I wish it nothing but the best. Um, <sighs> it uh, really reminded me very much of the musical Best Foot Forward, a musical from the 40s where a star goes to um, a, a cotillion dance to get publicity for herself. <laughs> and that sort of is the same thing that happens here. But we have a, a Broadway performers who are in a show that isn't going to run it closes on opening night it's a musical about eleanor roosevelt which i i wonder how crier and ford would feel about this because they were writing a, a a musical about eleanor roosevelt and i cy coleman and uh, dorothy fields were too in fact that's where the song is not where you start it's where you finish that wound up in seesaw comes from anyway so um the musical closes on opening night they need something to do they need to get their um publicity and uh, they hear about the situation in indiana where um a young student uh, a young miss emma has invited Alyssa, her girlfriend to the prom now uh, emma is out but Alyssa is not a uh, good orchestration character there and um to complicate matters, Alyssa's mother, Mrs. Green, is uh, very, very homophobic and uh, certainly wants to make sure that Emma doesn't take her girlfriend, whoever she may be, because Mrs. Green doesn't know it's her own daughter, to the prom. 
And the Broadway people, of course, um, very much um, in favor of gay rights, are certainly going to go there and do what they can ostensibly to help the girl, but really to get publicity. What's <laughs> wonderful, of course, is that as time goes on, they really become enmeshed in the lives. And what's really nice is Bush, Brooks Ashmanskis, um, who is uh, one of the people who suffered on opening night um, and got terrible reviews from um, the critics. Um, Barry Glickman is his name in the show, actually becomes a surrogate father to uh, Emma, who uh, indeed found out that um, (laughs) her own father um, didn't take much of an interest in this. Uh, And Alyssa's father, in a smart lyric by Chad Beglin, we, we learned that one of the reasons that Mrs. Green believes that her daughter has to do everything perfectly is because if she does do everything perfectly, then maybe he'll come back. So, um, so that's really uh, quite nice too. So, <clears throat> um, so it's a very uh, solid situation here, and uh, it's amazing how much uh, power and how much heft the story has in moving us. Um, because the, really, we we do see these people come through in a way. Now, it doesn't happen all that sentimentally that quickly, because the star, uh, the female star of Eleanor, who played Eleanor, uh, Dee Dee Allen, uh, a two-time Tony-winning actress, and she will prove it, by the way, as the show goes on, uh, will uh, is is far more reluctant to become involved in the the lives of the people here. Uh, she's still out for publicity longer than Barry is. She'll come through as time goes on. Of course she will. But nevertheless, um, we do see that she does have a heart after a long time of thinking maybe she doesn't. So um, Barry relates to this because his own family disowned him for being gay. And that's part of it. And he gets, he didn't go to his prom. And now he even thinks about the fact that he'll be going to this one. And you know, decades ago, there was a musical called Is There Life After High School, which suggests that we never quite get over our high school years. And certainly the authors of The Prom, uh, Chad Begelin and uh, Bob Martin of Drowsy Chaperone fame. Uh, by the way, Chad Begelin's quite famous, too. He's got Aladdin on Broadway as well. Um, they, they certainly tie into this because they give um, – Barry a number where he gets excited that he's finally going to the prom. So now Emma gets a chance. The publicity is so big that Emma gets a chance to be on TV and she turns it down. And the reason she turns it down is so smart and so wonderful. And so now that uh, I thought it was really quite a brainstorm. So I like that quite a bit. Uh, By the way, um, Director Casey Nicola, who's done a, a wonderful job here, and certainly uh, the choreography is is right on target too. But whether it's Casey Nicola or the authors, but they have been very careful not to make Mrs. Green one dimensional, because at the end of the show she has a line about being uh, her daughter being gay that 
does make sense too. Now we don't like this lady because when she tries to um, screw up the prom so that Emma cannot go, one of the things she does at the press conference say, we were worried about her safety. And you know, the, the people like that always go to that. They try to make it sound like they are wonderful people who are only concerned that there would be some sort of incident that the other kids would um, act terribly towards Emma and maybe that she would be hurt in some sort of melee. Well, we all well know that the kids would be better with this than and uh, Mrs. Green would be. But that's the wonderful PR spin that um, she puts on it. And that's, I believe, what would happen. So um, ultimately, what's really great is that it's a show that also celebrates what can happen when adults and teenagers work together. And I like that quite a bit, too. And I, 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 I always like stories where that happens, that, um, that they're not ever enemies. Let's also give some credit to Caitlin Kinnanen, who plays Emma, who I think is quite wonderful. Um, now, like Michael last week, I didn't see Beth Level either. Um, she was out at the performance I attended, but I will certainly second his emotion um, <laughs> that um, the uh, understudy, uh, and it's, it seems terrible to even use that term, um, Kate Marilee, was phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Michael had mentioned that she had uh, fluffed one tiny line, uh, I think, in the second act. Well, she's one word. One word. It didn't happen here. Uh, you know, again, she had another performance or two under her belt by the time I saw her. But I'm telling you, she this this is one of the great understudy performances I have ever seen. And uh, should Beth Level decide to take um, her life elsewhere, um, be it a TV series or a movie, uh, they've got somebody to take over who is quite sensational. And that's really quite great to see. And it also, again, gives me so much pride in Broadway that when understudies get a chance, they really are raring to go. They're ready to go on. They're prepared. All that goes with that. And so I really uh, appreciate that quite terrifically. Um, so Bruce Jashmanskis, very, very funny as the uh, flamboyant gay. And uh, also Isabel McCalla playing Alyssa is, is quite fine, too, um, because she really has this dilemma. It's still not easy for a lot of kids to come out, in, especially in small towns and uh, in states where um, there's a bit more red than blue. So all in all, I really believe the prom is going to have a sensational run. I expect it to do extraordinarily well during um, awards time. I, I think it has an excellent chance for best score because uh, not only are the lyrics by Chad Begelin good, but the music by Matthew Sklar is quite wonderful, especially in a very poignant number. Um, called Dance With You, when indeed um, Emma says to uh, Alyssa, that's all I want to do. All I want to do is dance with you. And, you know, it's really true. What, what are we making such a big deal of this for? That's mm -hmm. all they want to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, yes, I'm sure they're doing other things too. But in terms of the public, that's all they want to do. Um, as they say in How to Succeed, well, really, what's the harm? So um, I wish the prom well. I think it will do well. It's going to do extraordinarily well in uh, community and high school theater. But that's years and years and years away, I hope. Michael, what do you think? Oh, well, James, why don't you go? Because I, I, I uh, chimed in last week. Well, um, if I can speak a little Latin here, um, <laughs> Ibid, I-B-I-D. Ah, yes. <laughs> 
And, and ditto, is that Latin? Ditto, yes. Ditto, ditto is the uh, Latin for ghost, you know. Uh, so uh, I fully agree with Peter. Um, the prom over at the Long Acre is an extraordinarily funny, touching, endearing show. It, I'd like to, uh, you know... Uh, second, what I've read uh, elsewhere on Facebook and Twitter and other social media sites, this is a family musical. Take your children to see it. Um, I think it's really important. Uh, and it's interesting that there was the uh, somewhat of a little bit of a scandal that uh, the prom uh, performed this week on uh, at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, uh, televised nationally, and there was the famous uh, kiss at the end of the number, and conservative groups got very up in arms about there being uh, a kiss. I linked to an article from People.com, uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade airs first same-sex kiss, and some conservative viewers weren't thankful. Uh, this is uh, I, uh, unbelievable that people are... Uh, up in arms about this such a great show such a slice of humanity and very very funny um uh, very funny uh group of actors and writing i I just can't say enough of it Uh, i'm concerned um from a business standpoint that the prom is not pulling in great box office. Matt and I, uh, Matt Tamanini and I talk about it on Today on Broadway about the box office numbers for the prom have not been very good. Um, so hopefully the Thanksgiving um, parade performance will boost some box office for them and good reviews and word of mouth will get this thing going for a long, long time, just as uh, Peter has mentioned. Well, yeah. about that kiss, about that kiss, you know, um, my um, quote unquote, and I put I'm, I'm being purposely ironic here. My favorite line was uh, somebody who said, oh, they're making children lose their innocence. <laughs> well, do children lose their innocence when they see heterosexual couples kiss? I mean, we <laughs> this is children the lose their innocence <laughs> when they see people's heads blown off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, action movies, you know, I mean, so uh, good point, Michael. So as a result, you know, I, losing innocence, no, 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 no. You've got to understand that this happens. This is the world. And we're delighted that everybody finds somebody to love. Uh, it's wonderful when that happens. So um, calm down, people, about this. And it is not a case of losing innocence. It's a case of seeing people love each other. And that's a really good thing. But the and the, Go ahead. The interesting part about it for me is that this is what the whole fucking show is about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could they have planned this better from a PR standpoint? Then, well, I mean, the, the conservatives are. played right into it. <laughs> well, speak, uh, oh, I understand that too. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, but but really, um, I hope that there won't be a conservative backlash against Macy's, uh, the uh, ostensible host of what's going on here. And I haven't heard any statements from Macy. Have you uh, saying uh, we're proud or we regret or anything like that? Um, We didn't know. Uh, Has anybody (laughs) seen anything on that, that Macy's has made any type of statement? But a lot of I thought okay. I read one in passing, but I, I, I yeah. can't be sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, the thing is that a lot of people did say we're going to boycott Macy's, and um, uh, I, I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, and, yeah, it, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if indeed anything like that happens. Um, 
it'll be more than interesting. It'll be heartbreaking, really. Uh, you know, in my neighborhood, a chick um, fillet just opened, and um, I said, "Oh, um, I will go there the first day and um, get my chicken if they're giving free samples, because I will take their business, but I won't <laughs> give them business." And you know, I, I am telling you, every time I pass by, I'm looking to see how many people are in there, and um, so far, so good. But anyway, uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, chick uh, fillet is um, definitely anti-gay, and uh, so uh, uh, they certainly don't get any of my business when I'm at at an airport, at a food court, and um, and uh, hungry. So anyway, um, I, I hope Macy's doesn't suffer, and I hope there's even a boost in business. But uh, I also wonder uh, if and when this show is going to be done in Indiana, which is where the show takes place. And I also wonder if indeed um, Indiana will feel stigmatized by this show, feeling, uh, why did you pick us? Um, there are other states where this could take place. Of course, they might have said um, in some state in the union and not made it clear that it was Indiana. And uh, they may have been a little safer by doing that. But um, on the other hand, you know, the Mormons seem to be amused by Book of Mormon. So uh, maybe um, the, the Indian, Indianaites, whatever they're called. Hoosiers. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you. Um, well, <laughs> that was in, yeah. the, in the show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Um, that they will uh, certainly uh, take it uh, in the in the right frame of mind and maybe even get into the right frame of mind for those who need to be in the right frame of mind. I understand that right in this context is editorial and that's my perception on it. But still, um, I'm hoping for the best. You know, uh, Peter, there is now a Chick-fil-A in the theater district, so maybe we can yeah. – uh, they, they can have those two uh, actresses playing the lesbians uh, from the prom do a, a – you know, a – a promo or a, a <laughs> photo shoot or a or video there. Yes. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> sure so would. I found a statement from Macy's. At Macy's, oh. at Macy's, we are guided by our corporate values of acceptance, respect, and integrity and giving back. We hope that viewers found the 92nd annual parade for entertaining for a traditional mix of signature balloons, fantastic floats, and performances from the nation's best marching bands and musical acts. We look forward to next year. So a non-statement statement sort of uh, – Oh, a little more pro than con though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think so. And I, I know a lot of people, uh, past and present, Macy's employees, and, uh, and they're very uh, – they're very pro LGBTQ uh, uh, people, so I, I I wouldn't think that Macy's would come down on it. And certainly NBC knew it was coming. I mean, that the whole thing was rehearsed, uh, right? Uh, rehearsed prior, and and NBC knows about it, uh, knows everything, but all the details before it ever happens. So certainly there was no. Uh, there is no uh, thing to to stop there. So, all three of us missed Beth Level, and uh, uh -huh. we're all three of us are looking forward to going back to the prom. Uh, not only just to see Beth, who is awesome in the, in the past, but also to see the prom again because uh, it's that good. Oh yeah, yeah, to me this was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Oh yes, no, absolutely, yes, uh, definitely. I I agree with every word both of you guys said. I I think this is a fabulous show. I uh, I think it's one of those shows that has just just brilliantly mixes 
hilarious humor with serious emotional content, you know, it, it, along the lines of such other great shows as Hairspray and Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I think it, it's so well written in that way. I'm, I'm very, very happy for Chad Beglin and Matthew Sklar. I think their Wedding Singer is a show that should have run 10 times longer than it did. Um, it's done constantly, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's good. Um uh, uh, Elf is another wonderful show that they wrote, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I, I personally don't, don't love Aladdin, but that's another story. Uh, but I, uh, but I think that that they are really just great, and I think they did a phenomenal job here, along with the book writers. Uh, uh, well, the book writers are, are Bob Martin and Chad Beglin, um, and Casey Nicola. He just he he is just the greatest. I, I think that um, I think we should. Uh, give a tip of the hat. Uh, Peter mentioned her to uh, Courtney Collins, who plays the mother, uh, the homophobic mother, because it's a very, very, very fine line. She walks there um, to be not completely hateful and, and to try to gain our sympathy back, which I think happens at the at the very end when she she almost starts crying on stage and, and explains what she was trying to do. Uh, you know, uh, one one thing quickly, um, uh, uh, the friend that I brought to the show, he adored it, but he did think that it was perhaps a little too negative on the community and the Midwest. Um, I, I really don't agree because, I mean, as we know, uh, things like that do happen, uh, and not only in the Midwest, of course, uh, but it probably wouldn't have made as much sense to set it in Manhattan. Happen. Uh, so I, I I disagree in in that way, and I do think that the the writers really made it an effort to to show the mindset of these people. Uh, and uh, if I have anything negative to say about the show, I, I I think perhaps it was a little a little clunky the way uh, the uh, the kids and 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 the parents go from all of this really mean hatred that results in them actually moving the prom without telling the lesbian uh, uh, that they go from that to, uh, you know, to accepting them. But, but I, uh, but it's just a minor point. I, I, uh, go on. Uh, What I was going to say was uh, in combination with what your friend said about the Midwest town and then what you're saying about the people being clunky. I think that the writers have got to, take every take those characters on a journey for the storytelling and oh, I, sure and, and so it had to be from one extreme to the other and also within a reasonable time frame so you couldn't um Absolutely. I, I understand how how they needed to do that and certainly um you know we uh, uh there are pockets of of racism sexism and homophobia and things like that uh all over the world that certainly are much worse than what we saw on that stage uh so i i can understand and i think that it was the writers needed to go on take that those those that cast on a journey of change do you know what i have to i'm ashamed to tell you this story could have taken place on staten island Wow. Yeah, I, I don't today. know yeah. mm-hmm. if if you guys are aware of like some oh, yeah. things. Yeah, it's so. I just want to put that out there. I don't think it's anything about. I don't think it's anything against Indiana specifically. No, absolutely. One thing I wanted to see: Are, are you guys uh, uh, had you watched um, uh, the television show Thirty Rock? Had a lot of Broadway performance on it. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, no. Uh, so uh, on 30 Rock, Jane Krakowski uh, played the character of this actress on 30 Rock. And the character of Angie in The Prom, uh, <laughs> played by Andy Sh- Angie Schwar, the actress, uh, reminded me so much of Jane Krakowski's character on 30 Rock. And I wanted to see if that resonated with any of you. Michael, I guess since you had watched Thirty Rock, uh-huh. a bit. well, I I, I didn't uh, get to watch it that much. I'm I'm not even sure that uh, Jane wasn't a regular on it, was she? Uh, Jane Krakowski, yeah. Uh, oh, she, she was played, she? Yeah, she, I think she played a character named Jenna on uh, on Thirty Rock. Okay, well, clearly, uh, I mean, I, yeah. I I saw some of it, but clearly not a lot of it. But I'm glad you mentioned Andy G. Schwar because can I say she has been gifted and does a an amazing job with one of those fabulous gifts of having a laugh line that is so funny <laughs> it 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 literally stops the show. Yeah. It literally stops the show. And I can't remember the last time I saw one of those. It was probably a Neil Simon play 20 years ago, uh, Linda, uh, Linda Lavin uh, doing it in uh, in uh, Broadway Bound. But uh, that's the last time. I, uh, I, I am, of course, not going to tell you what this line is. I wish I could, but mm-hmm. I can't. You okay. have got to yeah. see it. And and one other quick thing, you know, we, um, we do hear uh, – uh, it's very, very sad to me when an amazing quality shows such as this one and Once on This Island are not doing as well as they should. I mean, I don't I, I think that bothers me a lot more than when even than when when garbage um Mm. is successful because you know whatever if people want to spend money on that that's fine but if they don't get to see good stuff because it's not based on a movie and it doesn't have a big star in it and it's not a franchise i I think that's very sad and 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 potentially a a tremendous well not potentially uh, a tremendous uh, danger sign for the theater so please and yet, <laughs> and yet, um, if you look carefully, you'll find that Once in This Island is about to surpass its original Broadway run. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's that's very nice because very few revivals do. Yes, we know about Cabaret. Yes, we know about Chicago. But even that acclaimed 92 revival of Guys and Dolls didn't match the original run of 1,200 performances. And uh, it certainly got raves that would have suggested that it was going to run substantially longer. No, people have seen shows. And as a result, revivals have a tougher time in uh, getting noticed. So under those circumstances, we have to applaud Once in the Silent for doing that. Um, um, and you might say, well, wait, 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 it's a circle in the square. That's such a small theater. Well, it happens to have 90 more seats than the Booth Theater, which is where Once in this Island originally played. So, right. uh, yes, of course, you know, we would like uh, the seats to be more filled for Once in this Island. That said, though, um, we have to look at the uh, glasses more than half full rather than somewhat empty. All right. So let's uh, move forward into our next review of the morning. Uh, Peter, you got down down to the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to see Matilda the Musical. So tell us, how is Matilda doing? Matilda's doing just fine. And um, I I can only say that um, 
the young woman I saw playing um, Matilda. Uh, you may not see her because, of course, there's an alternate, but I will say that Gemma Blue Greenbaum certainly does a wonderful job. She may be a little long in the tooth uh, for the part. <laughs> you know, really, when you think what this is the most demanding role a child can have in a musical, uh, Annie uh, doesn't have nearly as much to do as Matilda does, and um, there's a patter song that's almost like getting married today. So... Um, it's, it's a tough role, but, um, I adore Matilda for, uh, pointing out to us that some parents do not appreciate when they have really bright children. Um, you think they would, but a lot of parents get threatened by that. And that's the case here because Matilda is super bright. And while she does a couple of nasty things along the way, she is a child. And, uh, eventually when she has the chance to really get revenge on her father, she doesn't. She uh, does the right thing. And I'd like to think it happens because she's been reading a lot of literature, and I mean a lot of literature. Um, <laughs> even though she's in the first grade, there she is uh, talking about the fact that she's read Nicholas Nickleby and Tale of Two Cities and plenty of other classics too. I missed a line that I, I recall originally that after she mentioned all these famous tomes, you know, um, I'm not saying To Kill a Mockingbird was one of them, but uh, Yes, indeed. Books of that scope that um, at least in the London production, she finished by saying the cat in the hat, which was really very funny because, of course, um, it's a children's book. And, yeah, she's a kid, too. And so she enjoyed that as well. But it's a wonderful, wonderful production here. And if you did miss Matilda on Broadway, I mean, granted, you had almost four years to see it. But if you, uh, you know, the, the, uh, if, if you're a New Yorker, get down to the um Walnut Street Theater, which prides itself on being America's oldest theater. Uh, it's been renovated, for better or worse, uh, over the years. So it doesn't look like um, America's oldest theater, uh, which, again, may please some people and not please others. But Linda Goodrich has really done a wonderful production here. And um, the kids are really good in being um, very interested in serving the show rather than projecting aren't I terrific can you believe how wonderful I am um there's so many kid performers do that and um this one doesn't I uh, also have to applaud uh, Lynn Philistine and Christopher Sutton who if I got it correct um actually our married couple um uh, as I was leaving uh they were talking on the stage about uh, donating to Broadway Cares and um I I think I heard Lynn Philistine say that um, her, the, her husband on stage, they're the Wormwoods, um, is actually her husband in real life. Well, they certainly act well together, and um, so I'm very happy for them. And um, they do a wonderful job in playing these ignorant people who just appreciate their dull, normal son, uh, who really is a, 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 a moron, and that suits them perfectly well. Mark Donaldson is excellent in the part as well, giving a look uh, of being utterly stupid, and it was so wonderful at the curtain call to see that he doesn't look like that at all. So that was very good, too. And, of course, there's no talking about Matilda without mentioning Miss Trunchbull, um, the horror, who, um, if you think Miss Hannigan is a toughie, well, uh, you should see Miss uh, <laughs> um, Trunchbull. Now, e even take a look at the songs that, um, that are sung here. I mean, in um, Annie, of course, we hear Little Girls. And we hear Easy Street. Those are the songs in which Miss Hannigan gets a chance to sing. What about in Matilda? What does Miss Trunchbull get to sing? A song called The Hammer 
another one called The Smell of Rebellion. Doesn't that sound much more severe than Miss Hannigan? Well, you bet she is. And also, thank God uh, for teachers and librarians who saved Matilda, um, especially the teacher. The teacher is Miss Honey, and uh, Laura Gickness does very well by the part, and so does um, the woman playing the, the librarian, Mrs. Phelps, and that's Demetrius Joyce Bailey. And it's uh, librarian, especially Matilda, had, likes to invent her own stories. And, um, and it's so wonderful when she creates these lurid tales. And she actually scares the librarian who, who shrieks in horror that says, go on. <laughs> that's the way we we are with so many horror stories so we after we uh blanch at them we we want to hear more so and miss honey of course is a teacher who cannot believe her good fortune in finding a student so bright and so wonderful and she tries to convince the wormwoods that indeed they've got someone special there and they just cannot see it and we are living in an age where a lot of um <laughs> intelligence is not valued the way it used to be and that's why matilda really is sad to to say a show for our times by still but still pointing out what we need to hear okay so that is uh, matilda down at the walnut street playhouse and i'll have a link to that in the show notes michael you got over to uh, i think it was the cutting room where you saw orphan songs for orphan starfish which is <laughs> a uh a benefit for an organization called Orphan Starfish uh, featuring the music of Stephen Schwartz. Tell us about that. Yes. First of all, Orphan Starfish uh, Foundation sounds like a really wonderful charity. They, uh, let's see, they're dedicated to helping orphans, victims of abuse, survivors of trafficking, indigenous children, and at-risk youth break their cycles of abuse and poverty through computer-based education, job training, and job placement assistance. And one thing they do is they set up um, computer centers in in areas that would never have them. Uh, so so uh, please um, check them out. Uh, the website is uh, OSF. Dot org Orphaned Starfish Foundation OSF dot org. Uh, this was a wonderful evening at the Cutting Room featuring popular as well as cut songs from uh, Stephen Schwartz musicals. And he was very much present. Uh, the, the, one of the highlights of the evening was uh, a reunion of uh, early uh, members of some original cast and very early uh, on cast members of Godspell uh, that um, really was an incredible experience. I, I got to meet Peggy Gordon, uh-huh. uh, who is a, a Facebook friend of mine, but I had never met her in the flesh. And she was not only in uh, the original Godspell, but wrote uh, the beautiful song By My Side, which uh, had been retained from a previous incarnation of Godspell. Uh, w- w- even after Stephen Schwartz was brought in to write a completely new score, he basically said, Peggy, your song is so good, I'm going to keep it. <laughs> um, so that was wonderful. And, and to see... Uh, her there and um uh also it was uh, i had a i i had to go to this uh for at least for one at least one very important reason i i mean i i I love stephen schwartz i always uh enjoy his his stuff i think he's just the greatest uh and i was curious about the cut songs but also uh i noticed that one of the uh participants in the godspell reunion was going to be don scardino 
mm. who uh, Don Scardino starred in a couple of – well, first of all, the reason he was there was he played Jesus in Godspell for uh, apparently a thousand or more performances uh, in the original production, I think – only after it moved to Broadway. I'm not sure about that. But at any rate, uh, he he was Jesus for uh, at least a thousand times. Uh, and then he starred in a couple of um, big flop Broadway musicals. One is was Angel, and the other one was King of Hearts. And I um, interviewed him in 1978. Mm. So that was 40 years ago uh, for King of Hearts. And, and I had interviewed him in person, I remember. I, I don't remember exactly where it was. I think I might have been at Howard Johnson's. <laughs> uh, anyway, or maybe – actually, I think maybe it was Joe Allen or – Joe Allen. Anyway, um, he uh, – I had interviewed him then in person, and I had not laid eyes on him since that day 40 years ago because he then went to uh, – Eventually, he went to L.A. and became a very, very successful TV director. He's directed uh, episodes of some of the most famous sitcoms and other types of shows that that you've ever seen. So I uh, I really wanted to see him again, and, and I and I got to to say hi to him after the show, and I told him about the interview, and I uh, you know how uh, how happy I was for his subsequent success, and and he was just really really gracious and. And he actually seemed to recognize me also. So that was kind of amazing. Um, it was a, a, a wonderful night of great, great music. There were some amazing people in it, in this cutting room show, including Ben Vereen and Alice Ripley and Daisy Egan and some lesser known but equally talented people. Uh, and one of the highlights for me was, as I say, it was a mixture of famous songs and cut songs and also at least one brand new song. Uh, Stephen is working on a a uh, film version of the um, – I'm sorry. No, that's not correct. He's working on a stage musical version of The Prince of Egypt, uh, the the animated film that he wrote. And um, these two performers, Jacob Dickey and Blaine Krause, did um, a fabulous uh, mini medley of two songs, I Will Make It Right and No Power on Earth. Uh, I don't know the movie, so I'm not sure. I think uh, one or both of them, I think one of them is a new song. And it was it was so great. It's one of those songs, one of those Stephen Schwartz songs that you hear for the first time and you and you say, this is really fantastic. This is going to be uh, something that people are going to be singing for decades. I think it's you know, it's equivalent to some of his greatest songs from Pippin and Godspell and his other great shows. So um, keep uh, your eyes peeled for news about the Prince of Egypt. I have no idea what the time frame is on, um, uh, you know, on, on future productions, but uh, but we'll we'll certainly look forward to that. In that valuable recounting, uh, Michael, uh, mm-hmm. the most the the thing that stands out most to me is something that I have always noticed about Stephen Schwartz. When you said that uh, he allowed um, "Be My Side" by two other songwriters to be in the show because he thought it was a good song and it would help the show, uh, he could have very easily said, uh, "Get lost, guys! I'm writing the show. I will write a song for that spot." And this is who Stephen Schwartz is. Um, I have interviewed him so many times. I've done panel discussions with him. And what amazes me so much is whenever I say, I love when you did blah, 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 he always says that was so-and-so's idea. Mm. 
And I love that about him. And it reminds me of something I read when I was 16 years old that had such an, made such an impression on me in the biography, the autobiography, in fact, of Max Gordon, who was a Broadway producer way back when, did The Bandwagon, My Sister Eileen. Um, so we're talking about that era. So uh, he said, if the pie is big enough, there are enough slices for everybody. So meaning if the success is big enough, you know, you can share it. And uh, he, he, he meant financially, but also in terms of credit as well. And Stephen Schwartz is secure enough to know that he has certainly uh, accomplished so much. Back in the 70s, we were astonished that Godspell ran as long as it did, that Pippin ran as long as it did, that the Magic Show ran as long as it did. But I don't even know if this has happened yet, but if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen that Wicked alone will run longer than those three shows put together. It may have already happened, but Mm. the point is that uh, we are dealing with a guy who was super successful in the 70s, had a terrible patch in the 80s, and um, still... Mm had plenty to give us and has given us and we're very grateful for him but i just love him as a human being as well as an artist absolutely and peggy gordon in addition to recreating her original cast performance of by my side at this concert with a, with a wonderful woman named lucia janetta uh, and the company of of uh, of uh, original and early godspell people in addition to that she did speak about the 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 uh, retention of by my side in the show and basically said what you just said, uh, you know, the, about Stephen's incredible generosity when it would have been so easy mm-hmm, for him mm-hmm. to just yeah to to write something else and put it there in that in that slot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, let's move forward into our next review. Peter, you I'm not sure which direction you went. Did you go from Philadelphia to DC or DC to Philadelphia? But either way you went to see King John at the Folger Theater. So tell us about King John. Was it good to the last drop? <laughs> uh it certainly was and uh was really quite wonderful is I'd never been to the Folger Theater before and I saw that uh while it's in a square uh space it it makes a concerted effort to look like the Globe Theater that we now uh have in uh in England so that's <laughs> how you can tell uh with the uh double balconies and um a thrust stage and all that so a terrific terrific production of King John and to to the point where you say, why isn't this play done more often? And that's the greatest compliment you can give one of those obscure Shakespeare's uh, when you find out that it really is a great deal of worth. It's also fun to hear that this is where the expression bell, book, and candle, and um, as the day is long comes from. That's always a treat when you're watching Shakespeare and you find out that an expression you've been using all your life actually originated with him. And I did check, and yes, um, it wasn't like he took those expressions from someone else. Of course, he always often took a lot of plots from other places, but the language was his, and uh, he did invent those um, phrases. So, what's King John about? Well, King John, of course, was uh, not one of the best kings that uh, England ever had. And Brian Dykstra, uh, an actor I've admired for so long, who was so magnificent in the Jersey production of A View from the Bridge many years ago, which is where I've discovered him, um, a terrific, terrific performer uh, who often acts with his, um, uh, under the direction of his um, wife or partner, I'm not sure which, Margaret Perry, two T's on Margaret, by the way. Uh, this time is under the direction of Aaron Poster. Now, Aaron Poster starts the show by a prologue that he has written that tells us who everybody is. 
And you know something? It reminded me of those 30s movies where at the beginning of the movie, the black and white movies, they used to introduce each character uh, saying so-and-so as such-and-such a character. And the problem is you forget who they are by the time the movie starts. So if Aaron Poster was going to do this, a very talented director, did one fork of the Tour of a Theater um, company in Red Bank, New Jersey for, for many years. If, if he was going to do this type of thing, I'm sorry that he didn't intersperse it here and there. And you might say, oh, well, that's really playing with the text. Well, there's a bit of playing with the text anyway, because we do hear uh, lines from Richard III uh, in the show as well. So, so he does play fast and loose with it. But for the most part, it is King John, which does deal with a king who truly believes that he has all the answers. Um, he is not the least bit threatened, even though France is threatening him. He believes it's all going to work out, you know, no problem. And um, in this production, he's clumsy. (laughs) The first time he stumbled on a step, I thought, oh, my God, you know, is it going to be all right? Um, Actually, (laughs) this is something that's going to be, you should pardon the expression, a running joke, that he is going to um, stumble quite a bit. And it is a good metaphor for who King John was. He also uh, wears droopy pants that are much too large for him. So he doesn't even know how to dress. More to the point, um, many of uh, this is done in Edwardian dress. uh, But for the most part, um, (laughs) we see the nobles, um, uh, the, the higher class people wearing top hats, while the lower class people wear derbies. And sometimes they actually look like the characters in Waiting for Godot. So that's um, kind of interesting in terms of the uh, the costume design, which came from Sarah Cubbage. And I think it was a, a smart thing. So um, he really has that feeling that nothing can go wrong. He's on top of things, and we see that he's not. And that's going to be an astonishing problem. To find out um, who the uh, French people are and who the uh, British people are, uh, Aaron Posner has them wear boutonnieres. And we find out that Plantagenet actually comes from uh, a word for a type of flower, which maybe everybody knows, but I certainly didn't. So they were yellow flowers, and while the French people wear blue flowers, and even though the costumes are pretty much the same, the flowers tell us who's who. And I think um, that's quite uh, fine as well, a very smart idea. Um, so uh, everybody else in the cast is really wonderful, especially uh, a very famous actress in the Washington world, uh, who is Holly Twyford, who came up to Two River once and um, did a terrific job there. But here she plays Constance, the mother of Arthur, who, uh, you know, <laughs> in this, you know, in Shakespeare, anybody can turn out to be king. And she is dynamic as can be as time goes on uh, more and more. So even though King John only has a week to run, um, if you happen to be anywhere in Washington with a striking distance, I would urge you to go to see this charming theater, to see this wonderful production, and um, especially to see uh, Brian Dykstra and uh, Holly Twyford, who really give their all, and all from these two performers means quite a bit. So uh, I look back in our archives here. Michael has given us two good reviews from the Folgers Theater over the last couple of years, in 2015 and 2018. 2015, Michael saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead at the Folger, and uh, also Michael saw Macbeth at the Folger in 2018 uh, in September. So um, the Folger should be on people's radar screens as you get uh, down to the D.C. area. Yes. 
And by the way, while you're at the theater, there's a beautiful view of the Capitol building uh, <laughs> right down the street. I, it's it's really just terrific to even see that building uh, so close to the theater. I had a tough time finding it, even with the GPS. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, but you also, too? <laughs> yeah, it's a little. Yeah, it's a little. But also, Peter, I'm sorry. Did you mention this? They have a. Uh, they have a museum. Basically, they have a library. It's. I mean, it's. It is a library, and they yeah. have. They have uh, um, artifacts, including. Don't they have a, a first folio there? I didn't see it. I'm, I'm not saying no. I bet they do. I think they uh, have a first yeah. folio. That's yeah. pretty impressive as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, my trips to Washington have usually meant the National Theater or Arena Stage, so uh, or, or the Source. But uh, this is my first time there, and I'm very glad I made the effort. Yeah. So they have uh, an entire. Uh, Shakespeare Library at the Folger. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's very impressive. We're going to have to take a field trip down there to uh, check that out. Maybe um, we can chat with them, see if all three of us can go down there. We'll broadcast one day this week on Broadway from there. That'd be fun. Sooner the better. All right. Michael, why don't you hit us up with two reviews here? As you saw, Rachel York at Green Room 42 and Marilyn May at Feinstein's 54 Below. Tell us, how were these outstanding women? They were outstanding. Rachel York has one of the great voices, um, you know, that have been heard on Broadway and should be an even bigger star than she is. Uh, she is well known uh, for her magnificent performance in Victor Victoria uh, as Norma Cassidy and currently may be seen starring on Broadway in Head Over Heels, which is a, a really delightful show. And she did a wonderful uh, show at the Green Room 42, which is a, which is a really fabulous new, newish uh, space uh, in the Yotel on 10th Avenue near 42nd Street. Uh, we've reported on several shows there in the, in the past. Uh, they've only been open a year, a year and a half or so, uh, but they have some really good people there. Telly Leung has played there and um, uh, Francis Raffel, et cetera, uh, as well as uh, lesser known people. Uh, Rachel's show was phenomenal. She did. Uh, she sang a really thrilling version of "I Dreamed a Dream," which I had forgotten that she had uh, played Fontaine on Broadway at one point. Uh, uh, but I had not seen her or heard her in that role, so it was great for me to to hear her sing that incredible song. Um, and then she did lots of varied types of music, such as uh, she did actually uh, two. Um, uh, Michelle Legrand, Alan, Marilyn Bergman songs. How do you keep the music playing and a, um, uh, a, a piece of sky? And then she did River Deep, Mountain High, and a lot of uh, pop rock stuff that was terrific because she her voice is so versatile that she can handle any kind of music. Uh, and then she did um, that thing that several other performers uh, uh, who are really talented, I have seen them do, uh, including Christine Petty. And uh, Stephen Brinberg, where they will sing a song in the style of different famous artists and imitate those artists. So what uh, Rachel chose to do was, I Will Always Love You, the Dolly Parton song. uh, And she sang it through and she sang different sections of it. with brilliant imitations of everyone from Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston to Celine Dion and Eartha Kitt and Cher. And it was 
the audience just absolutely loved it. Um, so that was that. And then uh, I got to see Marilyn May, the amazing Marilyn May, who's now 91 years she old. Really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, during her uh, weeks, uh, almost a week run at uh, 54 Below, her Thanksgiving show. And it, she was, if possible, greater than ever, uh, oh. both in terms of the shape of her voice and and just the energy. It's It's just... It's phenomenal. And uh, one thing she did in this show that she focused on, she's mentioned it before, but she focused on the fact that how when she was really uh, when she first hit it big in the in the 60s, uh, that was the era when pop stars would record songs from Broadway uh, often before the shows opened. And sometimes the recordings were even released before the shows opened and they were thought of as uh, marketing tools, uh, but they became hits in their own right. And, 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 uh, and uh, Marilyn recorded several songs in that category, including golden rainbow, which she sang uh, the other night, but, uh, but she made the point that she was, uh, I'm not sh- I think she was the first person to record the song Cabaret, the title song from Cabaret. She yes. said she said that Candor and Ebb were at the recording session. That's how important this was to to her. And she had a bit she had quite a big hit with Cabaret. So um, that's, a, I guess, a little sort of subset of musical theater history that we don't often discuss that uh, these these huge pop hits pop hit versions of songs that from shows that, you know, that then became popular in the shows themselves. And, uh, I'd like to, uh, as, as our musical moments this, this week, I'd like to include a couple of examples of, of that from Marilyn, because she was, she was one of the most famous people for doing that back in the sixties. So, uh, in quickly looking over uh, some information from Green Room 42, Rachel York's performances uh, last couple of days actually marked the 500th performance at Green Room 42. So, uh, right. so yes. they are ramping up there and getting some great, great talent. We've we've interviewed a number of folks that have played at Green Room 42 and look forward to continuing to support these great outlets like Green Room 42 and Feinstein's 54 Below. They're just doing stuff that is absolutely incredible. And uh, and the new Birdland as well. Uh, yes, and and I almost forgot Stephen Brinberg, who I just mentioned, has a, a, a Christmas slash Hanukkah show uh-huh. <laughs> uh, coming up as, as Barbara, of course, on the 4th, December 4th at the new Birdland Theater, uh, which you should also definitely check out if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. Okay, let's move uh, forward into our next review. Peter, you got to see Shadows of Heroes. Did I get that correct? Shadows of Heroes at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Actually, Shadow, uh, to be technically correct, but nevertheless, close enough. This is a play by Robert Ardry that was first done off-Broadway in 1961 and didn't last very long. It must have been very potent, though, at the time because uh, it deals with Hungary and the difficulties of Hungarian politics starting in 1944 going up to 1956 when the Hungarian Revolution took place when for just a brief period of time uh, for one brief non-shining moment um, it was under communist rule uh, so uh, it it's a, a play that really centers of course on um, uh, 
activists who I really believe are based on real people because um, I did recognize the name uh, Jan Kadar. Um, I had heard that he was um, a revolutionary way back in the day. So I have a feeling that this really uh, – there really was a Laszlo uh, Rejic and um, and his wife, uh, Julia, who really – what heroes they were in trying to fight this system and uh, making a better Hungary. So the play takes place in Budapest and you really do see what happens when you really get politically involved uh, and uh, there's a big machine that's working against you. The odds are staggeringly against you. And um, <laughs> the play also has perhaps my my favorite um, <laughs> insult of the year and the year's almost in an end. So when one um, party member says to a person he doesn't like anymore, you double crossing barnyard of deceit. <laughs> I like that quite a bit. The play really does mirror our own times, especially in a line that there are two kinds of truth, that which is true and that which is necessary. So alternate facts are not uh, just a recent phenomenon, needless to say. Um, I also like the <laughs> uh, the um, insult, you hypocritical has been. <laughs> I thought that was terrific as well. So Audrey uh, had a wonderful way with words, but he has a wonderful way with characters too. And to watch people suffer while other people don't suffer because they compromise their principles is certainly something that we can all relate to, we can all see. It's amazing how many parallels. I'm not going to go into them. I want you to see the play. It's at the Metropolitan Playhouse, which isn't a stone's throw from Broadway. It's not even a great quarterback's throw from Broadway. It's between Avenues A and B on 4th Street. It's not um, a luxurious theater, to say the least. It's very small. Nevertheless, and I really have to commend Alex Rowe for finding these plays of yesteryear. I mean, this is not a famous play. Uh, he told me that actually um, he was given a, a book with three plays by Robert Ardrey in it. And um, Ardrey's agent, I believe, who said to him, uh, I think there should be a revival of Thunder Rock. And um, because that's his most famous work. And he read it and liked Thunder Rock. But isn't it interesting that he kept going and read the other two plays and he liked Shadow of Heroes even more. Now, that's somebody who really goes above and beyond the call. So, um, pay attention to what Alex Rowe is doing down at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Frankly, I seldom, if ever, miss any of their shows, and that's going to continue. All right. So uh, next up, Michael, you got over to uh, New Jersey PAC, NJ Performing Arts Center, uh, and you heard a symphony play the, uh, the music from Star Wars, the, the movie. So tell us about that. Oh, yeah. This was one of those amazing nights where the orchestra, in this case, the New Jersey Symphony, conducted by Constantine Katsopoulos, played the entire score for Star Wars along with the film. Uh, and I have seen several films done in this fashion, but never Star Wars. So that was an amazing experience for me because that score is just beyond, beyond. Um, I... <laughs> Uh, this obviously, this particular program was not theater related, but I wanted to mention it because they do so many wonderful uh, theater related programs at New Jersey Performing Arts Center. And 
it's so easy to get to, really, uh, by either path, train, or New Jersey Transit, and it doesn't cost a lot to get there. Uh, and once you get to New Newark Penn Station, you can either walk uh, 10 minutes or take a light rail to NJPAC, and they have really great stuff. And they also are very good about um, outreach and things like uh, programs for, for young people. For example, for this concert, they, they invited uh, kids and adults to come up to the front of the stage at intermission to speak with the musicians. Um, and I think that is so great. That's fabulous. Uh, yeah, uh, so really, um, this this facility is a magnificent facility. I, if you have not been there, try to get there. They they have, uh, in addition to the huge, um, beautiful concert hall where we were, they, they have a smaller theater um, where they have had, uh, you know, more intimate shows, cabaret-style shows. Uh, in fact, there was a series of... Uh, shows from their uh, the smaller theater that were telecast telecast on PBS um so they, they, they there's a lot going on there and it's a, it's a wonderful place that is i think helping to revitalize newark and uh check it out please it's just just great uh before we started recording we talked about the uh Star Wars and it and how it relates to Broadway and uh and Peter <laughs> wanted to talk a little bit, bit about that for a second. Well, I don't know quite what happened, but I do know the Strauss and Adams were interested in writing a musical of Star Wars and they actually wrote at least two songs because that's uh, the two songs live in my house. Um one is called Hand Your Man, um Hand Your Man, I don't know. Anyway, which is really quite good. The other one is a ballad called My Something, maybe My Love or something like that. Uh, but um I never heard the true story. Um, I have heard, and I always say, I tell you what I hear. I never say what I say is true. I can only tell you what I hear, that <laughs> um, they submitted the songs to George, George Lucas, who said, no, I'm really not interested. Uh, whether he didn't want a musical of Star Wars uh, for its own sake or he didn't like the songs, I have no idea. I don't even know if this happened. Uh, but whatever the case, they certainly wrote two songs, and uh, and um, that was the end of it, apparently. It's too bad, because I think what should have happened if there were a musical of Star Wars that the premium seats in the theater should be R2 and D2. I think that would have been a good idea. So, uh, but that's apparently not going to happen. Ironically enough, Michael and James, I watched the Star Wars movie recently because uh, on demand, I noticed there was Mel Brooks' Spaceballs movie, which is based on the Star Wars franchise. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to appreciate it unless I watch Star Wars. So I watched Star Wars. My God, what a good picture it is. And then I watched Spaceball. My God, what a horrible picture it is. Um, and not only that, <laughs> That. By the time I got to a, a character called Pizza the Hut, um, <laughs> the most disgusting image I have ever seen on film, yeah. making the picture of Dorian Gray look like the Mona Lisa. I'm telling you um, that it was very hard for me uh, to continue, and I didn't wind up finishing the movie, partly because I was afraid they were going to show Pizza the Hut again. So <laughs> anyway, um, that's my experience. But uh, <laughs> uh, too bad we didn't get a musical of Star Wars. It would have certainly been, at the very least, here's our overused word, interesting to see. <laughs> and I guess, uh, yeah, and I guess my uh, Star Wars experience was theater related in the sense that uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and certainly James Earl Jones um, have all done theater to one extent to another. Uh, there was a uh, an attempt to musicalize Star Wars with an unofficial um, 
an unofficial production that did not obtain rights and they were sued out of existence by the Lucas folks uh, protecting the Star Wars trademark. Uh, so it, it, uh, it hasn't uh, reappeared. But now that Disney now owns the Star Wars franchise mm. Uh, mm. and Disney's uh, role on Broadway and monetization of Star Wars, I wonder if we will ever actually see... Star Wars on Broadway itself. So we'll have to keep our ear to the ground and see if that happens. You know what? If they do, I hope they do it more like Harry Potter and less yeah. like and less like King Kong. I hope they do realize that it does not have to be a musical. Yeah. I see that's what, what I, that's my, that's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> Although new I hope. Do, I do like, yeah, new hope. I do hope that, uh, that that does come to fruition. Uh, speaking of television, um, we have a documentary that has hit the airwaves in the last couple of days. Uh, PBS is, is airing the, uh, the documentary, A Director's Life, based upon Hal Prince. Uh, so, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I, I got to see, I wasn't sure if I was going to get to see it in its first airing, which was Friday night at nine uh, Eastern Standard Time. But I did. And it was just great. Lonnie Price directed it. He did a superb job with it. Uh, wonderful uh, combination of lots of, you know, new footage of of Mr. Prince talking uh, and uh, great talking heads. Current, again, recent New footage uh, interviews with people such as Angela Lansbury and Mandy Patinkin, um, and then also incredible archival footage, including some some footage of the original Follies that I had not seen. Uh, and I would say that this documentary would be worth it if only to see that footage. But there's so much more to it, so many interesting uh, comments by Prince and the others and uh, great still photos and, and uh, just really superbly well done. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. One of my faithful readers, um, Anton Spivak, wrote me and said, Peter, I saw the Hell Prince special on WNET, and I looked at your piece in uh, Most Valuable Players, a book I wrote uh, some years ago, and I named Hal Prince Comeback Player of the Year um, for the 1987-88 season because, of course, he directed Phantom of the Opera. And interestingly enough, um, he had had a terrible span in the 80s where there was one flop after another, and he certainly redeemed himself or, or was appreciated, let's put it that way, uh, by the end of the decade with Phantom. So, And he told me I made a few math errors because what I calculated was how many days – of the year did Hal Prince's name appear in playbills and from starting with May 13th, 1954, because that's when the pajama game opened. That's the first time he had um, a producing credit. Now, frankly, he had some minor credits as a stage manager and other shows before that, but let's just start there because that's when his career began in earnest. Mm. So for the first decade, his name was in playbills 94.53% of the time. Wow. In decade two, from 64 to 74, 9551. Uh, a little bit down on um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the third decade, 92.28. But, you know, <laughs> that's still pretty good, isn't it? So even decade four, which was, I say, the disastrous one, 72.18. 
Now, by the way, when I say name in a playbill, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was producing a show. It means that it can mean that there was a revival of a show that he produced where it said originally produced by Harold Prince, but he still had his name in a playbill. And what about Decade 5 and Decade 6? 100%, because that's when Phantom opened, you know, (laughs) it was still running. So uh, Anton tells me that's 21,468 days out of 23,571 days, which is 91.08% of since 1954, his name has been in a playbill. And I would say that's an A where I went to school. Certainly. <laughs> that is, uh, and it's so many remembrances of people on Facebook and Twitter uh, of their first experience with Hal Prince. Uh, So I have included a link to the PBS website. I'm not 100% sure that it'll work wherever you are in the world, but it says that it's up and it's going to be available to stream. It's an hour and 20 some odd minutes off the PBS website. Um, And check it out in the show notes. It'll take you to it and see if you can watch it from there if you can't find it on your local PBS television station to watch it. And then check out uh, social media where everybody writes about their first Hal Prince experience. It's really amazing. All right. So before we wrap up and get to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, um, Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get to uh, Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as the show notes where we have all those links, including the Hal Prince thing on PBS and um, all the other things we've talked about today, can be found at BroadwayRadio.com. All right, so Peter, do you have uh, an answer for last week's trivia? Well, the question uh, started by saying that Mercury is currently in retrograde. Uh, So that spurred me to think, what all-female cast off-Broadway musical from 1994 actually had a lyric in it that mentions both Mercury and retrograde? And uh, as an added clue, I said the song has a name that is the name of a famous song that's being sung on Broadway right now. Well, the show was called Inside Out, and the song was called Let It Go which was written long before Frozen. The music by Adrian <laughs> Russ and the lyrics by Doug Haverty. It was a particular favorite of mine. Uh, Steve Garvey was the first to get it, followed by Jeff Falenga, Brigadude, and Robert Lobiondo. By the way, when I emailed Doug Haverty, with whom I used to work, that I asked the question, he told me that Inside Out is currently playing in Belgrade. So if you happen to be in Serbia these days, do drop in if not, well, let's hope for a Serbian cast album. All right, this week's question. 19 musicals that have been nominated for at least a couple of Tonys, some of which got wins, have another certain thing in common. Rather than name all 19, I'm going to choose one from each decade. Take me along from the 50s, the happy time from the 60s, the 1976 revival of My Fair Lady, the 1981 revival of The Pirates of Penzance, Ragtime from the 90s, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from the first decade of our new millennium, and Kinky Boots from the current decade. So, so with, with other, a, a dozen other musicals, they share the same commonality. What is it? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia... 
This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've got to stay